1: Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. The following
2: podcast contains explicit language. Hello. Welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. My guest this week is Molly Ball, the return of Molly Ball. Molly is at the Atlantic, and I think it was back in October – We had a a fantastic conversation about the election, one of my favorite episodes of the show so far. So, I asked her back to talk about, you know, we're 50-ish days into the Trump administration. How's it going? What does she think is happening? Molly had just written a great profile of Kellyanne Conway, the sort of Trump whisperer. You probably know her. Uh, She does a lot of not answering questions on cable news. And Molly used her as a fascinating window into Trumpism, into both its ideological roots, and how it is communicated out day to day. It's a great piece and we go pretty deep into it and also into the sort of alternative facts world of Trumpism, this world where you don't really need to win arguments. You simply need to have an argument that activates the right identities in your base. So we talk about that. We talk about Russia. We talk about how the Trump administration is running. We talk about... Revisiting some of our election uh, discussions, why Donald Trump won the election, what are the competing theories for it, how do they play out currently. We talked about what the Democrats are doing, if anything, and why some people are actually happy they don't seem to have a leader right now. This is uh, a very fun discussion. It's always a pleasure to talk to Molly. And I think you all enjoy it. As always, quick requests, please rate the podcast on iTunes, subscribe, share it on Facebook, on Twitter, send it to your friends. It is how we grow. I am grateful. Check out my other podcast, The Weeds, where I talk policy with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. And finally, uh, keep your show requests, your guest requests, your feedback coming to Ezra Show at box.com. All that said, Molly Ball, welcome back to the podcast. So glad to be back. When we talked last, the world was different.
3: Same planet, different vibe. Yes, it was before Election Day.
2: We had a a discussion in a lot of ways I want to return to, but I thought I'd begin with just a a big question. So the election itself was a surprise, I think, to most people. I don't know if you predicted it, but I did not. After the election, now that we're roughly 50 days into the Trump presidency itself, what has surprised you about it?
3: Oh, everything. Uh, I think about Trump's presidency and the way it has gone so far. How
2: he is as president... What has happened around him?
3: Yeah, I mean, there's so much that makes sense given the way the campaign went, but that I would not have imagined he would do. So a lot of the behaviors, the continuing to tweet, the extent to which this administration seems so much governed by just his personality, that is certainly of a piece with the campaign and his business practices, you know, the uh, high tolerance for conflict, the tendency to pit underlings against one another uh, the skeleton crew staffing levels they all make sense in retrospect but are still surprising because they are not the way most american presidents do things or the way our government is is used to operating he hasn't you wrote about this a few days ago and i thought it was uh, very correct i'm surprised he hasn't been more of a deal maker and both of us may have been wish casting a little bit to believe that Trump would be the negotiator, the uh, the Green Lantern president that Obama was always accused of not being. And you've written extensively about the ineffectiveness of president's bully pulpits, for example. Well, could Trump be an exception to that? We've seen him have the ability to move public opinion, at least in the Republican base, on issues like trade and Russia in really remarkable ways, really change people's views on issues. So could he do that with public opinion with large and and move Congress in so doing? Um, And so far, this whole idea that he would bring the parties together and find bipartisan areas of agreement has been very, very far off the radar of the way he has operated. I like
2: the way you put that, that what is surprising shouldn't have been a surprise. I think I've suffered from this a lot, that You keep watching Trump, and on a level that for me is in some ways almost subconscious, I think I keep expecting reversion to the mean, reversion to the mean of presidencies of White Houses. You know, you look at who he's nominating to his cabinet; a lot of them are pretty normal. That you do have your Bannons and your Stephen Millers, but there's a lot of basically Washington just people around Trump now. I think you you are giving. I'm shaking my head at this. I'm shaking
3: my head at this because I actually think that I mean this is not the cabinet that President Mitt Romney would have nominated. It's far more right wing. I think what I think think is surprising about that is all the conservatives who spent 2016 trying to tell us Trump was a liberal deep down or that the White House was going to be run by the Democrat Jared Kushner. There's not a single Democrat in the cabinet. Mm -hmm. And there is, besides Trump's continued rhetorical feints toward things like infrastructure, the, the cabinet and his Supreme Court nominee, I think, are more conservative than your sort of replacement level republican president.
2: I think that may be right although not I would have to go through it a little bit person by person but I think most of them are people who the way they operate is fairly traditional. And I expected that traditionalism to infect the administration more than it has. Trump has continued operating in a much more untraditional way. He is not under anybody's real influence. And it seems that to the degree that people want to bring him in, they get sidelined pretty quick. To the degree they want to run things normally, they get sidelined pretty quick. And it it continues to be um, run by this White House skeleton crew. There was a front page uh, New York Times piece on, on Sunday that made me feel a little sad for the guy. I think it was called Rex Tillerson leads from the shadows. Mm -hmm. Right. Because just nobody's seen him basically since he became um, secretary of state and he's not really been allowed to do very much.
3: Well, and Tillerson is certainly not a case of someone who had government or political experience. Right. He is also like Trump, a total outsider. And it's part of the reason he was picked. And I think he's actually a very good case study in what you're talking about. On the one hand, does Tillerson seem more middle of the road? and 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 versed in the norms of American foreign policy than, say, Rudy Giuliani would have been, who was also a candidate. Um, Yes. But uh, at the same time, he is an outsider choice, and and he doesn't seem like someone who would have been on the radar of a different Republican president.
2: That's an interesting question. I, I was fascinated by some of the sort of speculative reporting that came out about what Hillary Clinton would have done where there was this talk that you would have had the CEO of Starbucks, Howard Schultz, as her labor secretary. And Tillerson has felt to me like that, like the sort of one or two folks you occasionally see in a cabinet who is some kind of titan of industry or has some sort of big company they've run and come in and they are meant to do things sort of normally. And I guess that is a part of it that has been interesting to me. They have a lot of people around Trump who I think would like a lot of process. Whether you're talking about a, any of the generals around him, right? The military has a lot of process and they do things in a very structured way. Whether you're talking about some of the CEO players around him, even when you're talking about some of the folks he brought up from the House, like Price and Mulvaney, who are very conservative, but are also, you know, they, they, they've been working within the institutions of the American Congress. And Trump, I think, has continued to be, be pretty far outside of that. And you now have a, a profile in the, the latest issue of The Atlantic of one of the folks who I associate most with that behavior, which is Kellyanne Conway. And I guess I first wanted to ask you, why did you want to profile Conway? Of everybody you could have looked at in the administration, what, what caught your eye about her?
3: Well, she's someone I've known for a while, um, and I think she's interesting. I, I think it is remarkable the way she she's become sort of a mascot of this administration. And also, you know, in her flexible approach to the truth, And to facts, she really epitomizes a signal characteristic of this administration, which is this idea that it's not so much about what's really true and not true. It's about what you can get people to believe or what people want to believe. And you can encourage them to continue to believe. She also uh, may be the most powerful woman in America.
2: Except for Janet Yellen.
3: OK, that I'll, accept, <laughs> no, I t- I that I'll accept or some could say Ivanka, although she has no official That's title. Interesting. But think about that for a minute. Yeah. She's the most powerful woman in America by some standard.
2: You make this point in the piece that her strategy is she realizes she doesn't actually need to win the argument. All she needs to do is create something that looks if you squint kind of like an argument that is good enough for somebody who wants to be on the Trump side of the argument to buy into. She only has to create a a space for somebody who wants to believe there's an argument to have one on their side.
3: Absolutely. And I think that this is really the deeper phenomenon behind this phenomenon we're now calling fake news, right? Mm -hmm. The reason there is fake news is not just because there are some – teenagers in Macedonia trying to make a quick buck off Google ads, it's because when people are strongly motivated to believe something, they will grab onto anything that helps them with that gut belief. And they want to believe what they want to believe so much more strongly than they want to be presented with contradictory evidence. And this is why I think we're now seeing the rise of liberal fake news with uh, Things that validate liberals' gut feelings like stories about, you know, Russian hacked voting machines also going viral online because people want their assumptions validated. And so the spin of Kelly and Conway is slightly different in that regard because you're talking about making an argument. But I think it's similar where there are people who are just looking for an excuse to keep believing. And she gives them that.
2: When we spoke back in October – You made an argument to me at that time that the lesson you were taking from the campaign was it was wish casting, uh, to, to use your term, to believe that politics was really this contest of ideas and persuasion. That the thing that seemed to be happening and particularly the thing that we would report on as happening, these candidates making arguments, releasing policy papers, that that was a little bit of a sideshow. That what was really happening was different candidates were activating different identities in the electorate. And the identities Donald Trump activated were extremely powerful. And what seems to me to be interesting about Conway is that she recognizes that what you simply need to do is activate the identities. When I listen to her on television and she gets a question she doesn't like, she does not try to beat back the question. She tries to activate the correct counter-identity, anti-establishment, pro-Trump, America first, let's call it, as opposed to anti-immigrant. But that is very powerful. And the thing that has struck me as so profound within the Trump administration is that it really does seem to rely on that as a central communication device, that when they don't like something, they don't really fight the argument. They try to absorb their fight against it into the correct identity. So it's not really, are they right or the media is right? But the media is the opposition party. And do you like that elite East Coast media? If not, then you're on their team.
3: Right. It's a culture war and it's a narrative of resentment. It's this idea that You know, everyone's got a chip on their shoulder. Everyone feels like a victim of larger forces. And Trump, I think, is extremely good at activating uh, that. And everybody has that on some level. Everybody at some point in their life feels like they've gotten screwed um, or weren't treated fairly. And this is the axis on which Trump argues everything, right, is not good or bad. It's fair or unfair. And I perceive a lot of that in the types of arguments that Kellyanne Conway makes. And uh, my piece leads off with an anecdote from her where she's still sort of nursing a grudge from the election and talking about all of the the naysayers, the haters who said it couldn't happen. And, you know, we see this with Trump. He's never seemed to let the election go. And and I saw this in speaking to Kellyanne's mother who still lives at her childhood home in New Jersey and who also seems to have this sense. And so uh, I think that's a powerful force.
2: What is Kellyanne Conway's identity herself? Because something that strikes me about this is a question with a Sean Spicer, a Kellyanne Conway, some of these different players, probably some of the players who were very different prior to their association with Trump, which, as you know, there are things that Kellyanne Conway did before Trump that fed into Trumpism and things that were quite counter to Trumpism. Do you think that she is playing a double game, that there's a kind of Conway behind the Conway. And she's going out there and be like, yeah, what I'm saying may not be true, but it's for the greater good. Or does she believe everything she's saying? How do you see her empirical sort of meta universe?
3: (laughs) Well, it's true that the mask never drops. There is not a person that she is in private uh, that's different than her public self, but there is this sort of knowingness, this this winking quality to a lot of her public persona, whether it's her tweets or her television appearances, that does make people think she's sort of in on the joke. But, you know, I think she sees herself as an outsider, despite the fact that she's been, you know, a resident of the Beltway Mafia in good standing, although she's lived in New York for a few years. Um, when she lived in New York, she lived in one of Trump's buildings, you know, in a very expensive condominium. Uh, And now she lives in a very expensive house in New Jersey, but she still sees herself as an outsider. And she really does come from a sort of blue collar, working class, you know, white ethnic, in this case, Italian background in rural New Jersey. And so she connects very much with that sort of stereotypical base of the Trump voter. And I think she was open to, in fact, she has been pushing an alternate explanation that is at odds with the RNC and establishment and chamber of commerce and Republican consultant class view of the electorate and particularly the immigration issue, she has been on that side uh, for a good couple of decades. And you know I make the case in the piece and Stephen Bannon makes the case in the piece in a conversation I had with him that she was one of the intellectual architects of the Trump populist movement in the way she articulated the argument against immigration and that her polling, uh, which for for a long time has made the case that Republicans can win by articulating a, a pro-worker uh, case against even legal immigration for restricting immigration at all levels, She's been making the case that that was a way for Republicans to win elections for a long, long time. A- and this is something that Trump picked up on in language that he started using. And it's similar to the case that uh, Jeff Sessions was making as a senator when he argued against immigration reform. So she has really been central to the whole philosophy of Trumpism.
2: So this is something that was really interesting about your piece because you trace in the article this idea that Trumpism perhaps predates Donald Trump that quietly on the margins, Stephen Bannon and Stephen Miller and Jeff Sessions and Kellyanne Conway had a sort of like-minded ideological alliance, that they were interested in a similar theory of the electorate, and that they ended up finding, a little bit through coincidence and convenience, a candidate who sort of shared that theory intuitively, but then could be shaped a little bit in that direction. So what did Trumpism look like before Trump? Or what did Bannonism and Conwayism look like before Trump?
3: But Bannon himself, I believe, has called Trump sort of a, a rough vessel, I forget the term he used, for the populist message. Uh, and before Trump came along, he was trying to get Sarah Palin to be that person in uh, making a documentary about her, I believe, back in 2011, trying to get her to run in the 2012 election on a very similar platform. That was when... Palin was going out and giving speeches against crony capitalism and sort of making an anti-elite argument that was relatively novel for a Republican at that time. And now you've heard a lot of candidates adopt. So this is uh, a worldview that uh, Bannon told me he was working with Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller and Kellyanne Conway to build a cabal, as he called it, uh, to articulate this populist message and to... uh, First, uh, build support for immigration restriction in the House and Senate and derail comprehensive immigration reform, and then to get a populist Republican presidential nominee. And Trump, as you say, uh, ended up being the vehicle for that.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline
2: What were its specifics? You go through this idea that there was an electoral case to it, right? This electoral case that maybe Republicans didn't have to win over a more multicultural coalition. They could just win over more white voters, turn them out in broader numbers. That happened too. But aside from beating immigration reform, because for a long time I think this agenda was defined in the negative, what it didn't want, what it was upset that the Republican establishment was doing or that the Democratic establishment was doing, but what did it want?
3: Well, we talked about this the last time I was on, right? Sort of the Pat Buchananite, the alternative to the Reaganite three-legged stool, which is about uh, protectionism on trade, opposition to increased immigration levels, particularly from certain countries, and the America first foreign policy, which is transactional and somewhat isolationist, as opposed to the more um, interventionist streak that we've seen in both parties in in recent years so i think they would say that that is populism in a nutshell and we've heard trump articulate this in speeches mostly written by stephen miller who's in the white house now Um, and it's very much they see it as contiguous with and it sounds very contiguous with the right-wing nationalist movements that you're seeing across europe which are about national sovereignty and borders and uh, people's sense of national identity
2: how do you maintain an anti-elite identity when you are the White House? And also to to go back to some other interesting threads here, when you are really endorsing what Republicans in Congress are doing, right, Trump is not standing outside of everything and and running against the entire system at this point. He is aggressively allying with one side, particularly around domestic and economic legislation or, or trying to. So, one part of the identity has to do with America first and restrictionism, but another part has to do with elitism and being against the sort of establishment political class. Is there a tension here or, or is that tension weaker than folks think?
3: I don't know. I think that's one of the evolving strands of this administration, although I want to go back to what you're saying about conservative policy in the House and Senate. It's, I'm really interested to see what happens on health care. Because Trump, who at some point in the distant past was for single payer and then for the campaign said, we're going to cover everybody. We won't let anybody die in the street. And he has now signed on to the House Republicans repeal and replace plan. But what's interesting is uh, you have talk radio and a lot of pro-Trump media trying to insist that it's Paul Ryan's plan and that it is not a Trumpist plan. Because they don't see it as conservative or or as consistent with Trump's message. So it will be interesting to see if Trump can make this bill his bill and then use his popularity with the Republican base to make Republicans both in the electorate and in the Congress embrace it. Because uh, so far, the rollout's been a little bit rocky. You know, there's tax reform as well. We know that Trump's instincts are toward protectionism. We know that the Republican Congress is very much on the other side of that issue in favor of free trade. And there's been an internal fight in the White House over where they come down on the border adjustment tax. And Trump himself seems to still want tariffs. Uh, And so where will that go when and if they take a stand and when and if there's a piece of legislation? I find it interesting that while uh, the Trump administration has pulled out of the TPP, which the United States never ratified anyway, so that's just sort of no change in policy, uh, he hasn't pulled out of NAFTA as he promised he would sort of instantly do, uh, which would start a trade war. And so they are proceeding a little bit more carefully, uh, and I don't think we know yet where those things are going to end up.
2: So it's been really fascinating to read Breitbart during this, because Mm -hmm. Breitbart has had this consistent message, which is Paul Ryan is tricking Donald Trump, that Paul Ryan and Ryan's allies in the White House, which tends to be in Priebus, they're pulling the wool over his eyes. They had this interview with Rand Paul, where Rand Paul literally said they're pulling the wool over Donald Trump's eyes, and it reminded me In older monarchies, when the monarch was supposedly divinely inspired, the monarch could never be wrong. It had to be the advisors who were misleading him, right? The monarch's instincts always had to be good, but there could be evil people around him who who were tricking him and and leading him down a dark path. And there's been a a dimension of this uh, in the sort of fight over what Trump really believes and who Trump is, that if they don't like something, it's not that Trump is wrong, it's that Trump is being tricked by these sort of evil establishment players. And that's been fascinating. It's a very different dynamic in an opposition than you typically see.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's so much Kremlinology that goes on. And I've resisted falling down that rabbit hole of only because uh, it seems pointless. You can never possibly know what the truth is because no one will tell you what's really happening and everybody has an agenda. But there is clearly this tug of war because. It, Clearly, Trump is not someone with firm ideological moorings, and I think that was supposed to be one of his selling points, right, was that he was sort of a non-ideological candidate who could break through the gridlock for certain voters. Now, so many people saw what they wanted to see in Trump, and in talking to voters during the campaign, I would hear just polar opposite things about what they thought he stood for because he did have this incredible ability— to make people hear whatever they wanted to hear. So I would have some people say, well, I think he's, he's really a moderate or an independent, and that's what I want because I think both parties are terrible. And then you would have conservatives saying, well, you know, he's a conservative, he's going to appoint a super conservative Supreme Court justice, and, and, and he's really on my side. Uh, and, and so I've tried to focus on results. I've tried to focus on what he's actually doing in practice or what effect... He's able to turn those non-traditional tactics to. Um, and I think the jury is still out, but I do think that there's a lot of tea leaves we can read in terms of how it's gone so far. And like I said, I agreed with your analysis the other day that it's been surprising that he hasn't made more of an effort to be a transpartisan president.
2: One of the things that has, for me, begun to seem like a model that helps is there are almost two categories of results for Trump. There are the things where he really cares. I think Trump really cares about immigration. He, on some level, cares about trade. As you say, the jury's out on what he will ultimately do there, but even pulling fully out of the TPP immediately, that's something where he did make that promise, and he did follow through in a pretty full-on way. Healthcare is really the exact opposite. Healthcare, he promised to be a very different kind of Republican, had said he would cover everybody, that nobody is going to be left out of his plan, there'll be lower deductibles, he won't cut Medicaid, and he signed on to a plan that, that does all those things. And so it seems to me that there is genuinely a difference and possibly a strategic one between the places Trump either himself cares about or sees as defining his agenda. And again, here, I think those include borders. I think they include trade. And then the places where Trump maybe is not himself that engaged and is more malleable. And I think his administration has had a little bit more of a go along to get along relationship with Republicans in Congress, where, where the implicit deal is they let him do the America first stuff, and he lets them do a fair amount of economic conservatism. I agree that taxes will be another place where we'll have to see how the rubber hits the road on that one. It's really seemed like a very sharp distinction. There's like stuff where he's just a normal Republican doing what Paul Ryan wants and stuff where he's not a normal Republican at all, and he's making them come along with what he wants.
3: Yes. Uh, But I think this is all still a work in progress. And it's important to note that the Republican Congress hasn't actually gotten to do any of these things yet, in part because of the internal divisions that they've had for such a long time. And in part because, you know, give these guys some credit, they actually believe this stuff. The conservatives in Congress really believe in, you know, rolling back the intrusions that they perceive in Obamacare or the the ways in which it has, uh, in their mind, ruined the healthcare markets. And so and they really do want conservative solution to this and don't see uh, the Ryan plan as a full repeal that they actually wanted and actually promised. And, you know, fiscal conservatism as well. There's a fear that Trump is just going to blow up the deficit by, you know, expanding military spending and potentially trying to spend more money on infrastructure and cutting a bunch of taxes at the same time so there's only imaginary revenue that comes from imaginary economic growth can fill that hole. Uh, the, uh, in terms of Trump's core principles, though, the things he's consistent on, the things we can say, we are pretty sure he believes. I don't think you can leave Islam off that list. I think that's right. Because um, you know, the, the Muslim ban, his, his advisors I, – I was one of the moderators of the, the post-campaign uh, campaign manager's download at, at Harvard – in uh, November and all the Trump advisors talked about uh, the Muslim ban and and, and what a masterstroke it was and how galvanizing it was and how, you know, Trump was sort of a genius for having seen the appetite for that in the Republican electorate. And there was sort of a, one of the Jeb Bush advisors sort of (laughs) quietly said, well, some of us didn't think that was constitutional and that's why we didn't propose it, not because we didn't know it would be popular. But, you know, this thing about uh, radical Islamic terrorism the sort of clash of civilizations worldview that Bannon clearly seems to hold, uh, the idea that Muslims are dangerous. Uh, It's interesting to me that Trump did not propose a full Muslim ban, which was the thing he promised during the campaign and which may or may not be constitutional, depending on on who you ask. Uh, He first proposed this very clumsily rolled out travel ban then rescinded it, which was very interesting to me because that was an instance of Trump running into institutional checks and balances, in this case the courts, and backing down. He said, I'll see you in court. And then he withdrew the order rather than you know, continue to, uh, to push forward with it. Uh, and now he's issued uh, this revised travel ban, which will also be tested, but which falls even further short of the idea of temporarily banning all Muslim immigration. But so many of Trump's actions, the shouting match he got into with the prime minister of Australia over the agreement that that was in place for them to send us refugees, uh, he definitely seems to have a gut instinct toward um, a particular view of Muslims.
2: I'm going to just say real quick, if you want to read a great piece on the broader sort of anti-Muslim ideology within the Trump administration. My colleague, Zach Beecham, wrote a piece on Trump's counter-jihad, which you should search on Vox, Vox and counter-jihad. And it goes very, very deep into the sort of theory here and what Bannon has said about it in the past. And I didn't really know much about this and did not realize what Trump had been picking up and marinating in. But I, I think you're right. I think it's very core to them. What do you think is going on with the Democrats right now? They are... Hanging pretty far back, it seems to me, amidst all this. But I'm curious if your impression of how they as a party, particularly in Congress, are responding.
3: Well, the Democrats are a mess and they are historically powerless. Uh, In state legislatures and governorships, in the House and Senate, uh, they have been reduced to levels of irrelevancy that have not been seen for decades and decades. So that's a problem for the Democrats. Uh, They are also confused, right, because uh, no one can agree on how to read the results of the election, whether we should continue as previously scheduled because Hillary Clinton won the popular vote and we can just ignore the fact that they didn't win anything, or um, there's you know a big fight between the Bernie camp and the Hillary camp, the economic progressives and the centrists or corporatists, but also between the sort of uh, identity left and the and the more like you know we have to go out and talk to the bubbas people. But in terms of the strategy of the Democrats who are left, um, what I was hearing, especially in the very early days of the new Congress, from House and Senate Democrats was that they didn't feel their leaders really had any strategy, but that that was probably the best approach. The idea was to sort of um, stand back and let the Republicans blow themselves up. And that's risky because you don't know if they will. And there's always the theoretical possibility that they could get their act together. But on the other hand, there was too much internal garment-rending and disagreement and also competition because a lot of these guys are thinking, oh, maybe I should be the next presidential nominee. I mm-hmm. can fix all of this. Uh, so so, so there's a lot of things preventing them from presenting a unified front, but, but, but they don't really have to.
2: I was having this conversation with somebody the other day who was saying that there's all this complaining that Democrats don't have a leader, but the last thing they want right now is a leader because what Trump needs is an opponent. And without the Democrats, he's been reduced to making the media his opponent, which is okay. Um, it might even be a good strategy, but but it's a complicated one going right against the media. It's certainly an untested strategy and, and it can create problems for you probably down the road. But it's been very interesting to see Donald Trump sort of severed from having someone of his stature to fight, right? In the Republican primary, he was fighting the other Republicans in the general election. It was Hillary Clinton. And now he's kind of casting about He's tried to take on Schumer a couple of times, but it just it fades out very quickly because nobody really cares.
3: Yeah. The targets are too small. I completely agree with you. And, and you see who Trump is still feuding with. It's the media, but it's also it's he's still running against Hillary and mm-hmm. he's still running against Obama. And I think what he's found is that the campaign against Obama is what still resonates the most with his base. And so that's what you see in the fundraising emails. Uh, And that's what you see in his tweets about wiretapping based on no evidence, uh, is that he's just going to continue to run against Obama. The problem for Trump is that may get his base exercised, but uh, he's not going to run against the media, Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama in 2020. He's going to have an actual opponent. Uh, And so we'll see, you know, how long those tactics continue to satisfy him.
2: Okay, but this wiretapping thing, I think, is actually worth taking on for a minute. So I think this goes back to what you wrote about Kellyanne Conway in an interesting way, which is you don't really need a counter argument. What you need is a counter narrative. Whether it has facts or not, you just need something for your supporters to say. And Trump has been facing this consistent drumbeat around Russia, and this consistent drumbeat that perhaps something illegitimate or incorrect happened in in his campaign and with amid contacts between his staff members and, and Russians. And for a while, he was pushing back on that and he was trying to say the real issue was leakers. And it seemed to me he was really flailing there. And then what they did, which was either genius or I think could end up having been a very, very bad idea, was that they came out or he came out, I think pretty much on his own volition after reading a Breitbart article with this idea that actually the real issue here was Barack Obama had wiretapped Trump towers illegally. And again, there is no evidence here this, as far as Abigail just didn't happen. It's an incredibly grave um, accusation. And it's, he is now joined into the calls for a congressional investigation around Russia and to, to add this in, which he might regret powering that investigation up. But the idea that you can just do this. The idea that you can just come up with an argument as sort of off the wall and outlandish and grave as that. And you know, your whole administration just kind of like says, okay, I was watching on Face the Nation this weekend. Paul Ryan was asked about it, and you could see his eyes screaming, but even as his eyes screamed, he said, That's why we have Senate and House investigations. We'll get to the bottom of this thing there's no evidence for and see what, see what the truth is. And it has been amazing to me to watch Trump says something like that, and then his whole party has to figure out a way to say, well, maybe, well, okay.
3: I kind of love the way, the how transparent in a way the administration has been about uh, Trump's personal penchant to believe conspiracy theories and then spout them. I, I love that press conference where Sean Spicer had to come out after the uh, allegation of millions of illegal votes, which was also supported by no evidence, and, and Spicer saying repeatedly, this is something the president believes. He might as well have been saying, "Like the president believes things that aren't true. What do you want me to do about it? He believes it, and I think Sean was telling the truth. <laughs> this is a thing the president believes. Now it may or may not be true. As far as we know, it is not true. Uh, same with the wiretapping. You know, we it, it may turn out to be true. We don't have any evidence for it yet. Uh, but Trump has always trafficked in conspiracy theories. Uh, you know, the birther theory, mm-hmm. which. For all intents and purposes, he seems still to believe, despite that one sort of technical apology at that one press conference.
2: I thought Kellyanne Conway said he put it to rest.
3: He, he put it to rest and then kept talking about it is the way that it seems to have happened. And uh, Ted Cruz's dad was involved in the JFK assassination. He's surrounded by conspiracy theorists. You know, Roger Stone is still a good friend of his and is a major uh, spouter of conspiracy theories. And all of these websites you know from breitbart to newsmax to infowars who donald trump you know loves alex jones and and they spout these conspiracy theories too and in every case there's some sort of not grain of truth but some real thing that has made people paranoid right and paranoid enough that they're probably they're poised to believe it so in the case of the wiretaps you know Well, we know that the Russian ambassador's phone calls were all being recorded, and that's how we found out that Michael Flynn wasn't telling the truth about what he said in those calls, because every time he got on the phone with the Russian ambassador, the intelligence community was getting a transcript of it. We know that NSA surveillance has been a huge controversy of the past decade and plus in the past two administrations in American politics. So I think for a lot of people, there's this sort of Ambient feeling that your every move is being recorded. So, for Donald Trump to say they were tapping my phones doesn't even seem that far fetched.
2: I think that's right, and even if it is far fetched, because I want to, I want to keep that out there. In that way, I think Donald Trump. I heard Ross Douthit or somebody described him as a one-man cable news focus group. That he is in some ways an extremely good barometer of what somebody who just sits around watching cable news all day. And which it, he does. Which he does and has very strong but often uninformed opinions about American politics might be willing to believe because he might be willing to believe a lot of things. And and as the occasion comes up and as incentives align, he does end up believing a lot of things. This is one of those things where the reversion to the mean didn't happen, where despite having the vast informational resources of the American government behind him, that changes a lot of presidents when they come into office. Not so much that they were irresponsible before, but they get very – weighed down by the weight of what they know. You can, you can see it happen to them. It happened very much to Obama. It happened to George W. Bush. He has not gotten weighed down by the weight of what he now knows. It has not um, in any way seemed to constrain him. And even more to the point, he has been willing to just sort of accidentally cause huge problems within his own agencies and with his own administration. The head of the FBI demanded an apology from the, the Justice Department come out and officially retract what Trump said about the wiretapping. And then when they didn't, it was clear the head of the FBI or somebody close to him leaked that he had demanded the apology to the New York Times. And Trump not only is not being constrained by the information he's being given and what people say isn't, isn't true, but he's not even upset if he contravenes or angers those particular parts of his administration, he still operates an incredible move from his own government, which was not something I saw coming. For him to be able to retain this kind of detachment from the organizations he leads.
3: Yeah, well, and I think for a lot of his supporters, this is uh, exactly what they wanted. This Mm -hmm. is the disruption of the system that they wanted. This is a man who is bigger than the bureaucratic processes of the permanent governing class and who is able to break up that system, who is not going to be sort of tamed by the way things are supposed to work. Right, who's going to keep trying to blow things up and who has, has enough of a, a, a sense of uh, confidence that he's not bowed by the so-called experts. I, I think you said it yourself in this conversation. He's, he seems to be his own man, and that's what a lot of people wanted.
2: I'm curious about how you see that detachment playing out in the long run. So Donald Trump, with you know, arguably some reason, does not trust his own bureaucracy, he does not trust the civil servants in the agencies that that he supposedly leads. And there has been a lot of leaking, right? You can understand where the mistrust comes from. But it does mean that compared to past presidents, he is running a government that he does not really believe he runs. And he is, I think, being very careful about processes. A lot is being centralized within the White House and people he's sure are loyal because they're worried about what will leak. They're worried about what will come out. And also there's a – just in the way he talks about government and in the way what he does and doesn't trust coming up from it, uh, he's unusual. I, I was talking to somebody who, who made the point to me that when Trump's Muslim travel ban or whatever you want to call it was before the Ninth Circuit, he sent out this tweet where he said, I don't know why the lawyers aren't arguing for the Boston precedent, which appears to be something he saw on cable news that they should be using this other argument than the one they were, they were using. But, but the person pointed out to me, I mean, look at, look at what he's saying there. These are his lawyers. They're arguing for his policy on his behalf. He doesn't know who they are. He doesn't know what they're doing. He doesn't know why they're doing it. He doesn't know how to reach them. And he's just sitting there out there tweeting it out. That alienation from the organization that he runs, that feeling that he can't just pick up the phone and have it do the thing he needs it to do, I wonder if that can persist and particularly because... You know, ultimately, if and, you know, you saw this a lot under Obama, you see it under Bush, if FEMA fails during a disaster or the VA does a really bad job delivering healthcare benefits to, to veterans, Donald Trump is accountable for a bureaucracy and for a, an executive branch that he seems very uncomfortable with and does not seem really willing to take responsibility on its behalf.
3: Well, we'll see. I think that's the big question is what will happen uh, when he is tested by a crisis and that hasn't happened yet. But when there is a uh, God forbid, a terrorist attack or a natural disaster or a challenge from a foreign power and none of these things have happened yet, but all presidencies end up being defined by the way they respond to crisis, not by the way they execute the agenda that they brought with them coming in. And that is when we're really going to find out how this thing works and whether it works.
2: That's a super interesting point. I've not heard that before.
3: Oh, I thought it was a pretty common theory. I feel like I've heard it from presidential historians. I definitely didn't come up with it. Uh, But I think it's true if you look at the historical record uh, because the best intentions fall apart when you have to actually respond to events. And every president does. And that's when you find out, you know, is this a president who's sort of overly reactive? Is this a president who's overly ideological in the way he sees things unfolding? And to the extent that Trump's image is as a sort of ass-kicking businessman who makes things happen, it's when there's a crisis that we're going to find out if he's effective. And if effectiveness is your metric, if you take ideology out of it and say, is this an effective president? I think it's the responses to events that show whether that's true or not.
2: I think that's fascinating. And one thing it makes me think of is the Yemen raid. There was a raid in Yemen that the military brought to Trump, which is what you do for this kind of attack or, or operation. He cleared it. It went badly. People died. And in what was a pretty unusual move, he then disowned it. He said, this is something they planned. The, the, the military was he not blamed a good his plan. Own generals he blamed his own for generals for recommending it. My understanding is they've actually now changed the procedure so he will not personally approve as many of them, which gives him a a layer of non-accountability, I guess. But in terms of signaling what might happen during a crisis, I was very struck by that because that is something that you particularly would not have expected somebody with executive experience to do. But in general, there's this whole idea of the buck stops here and Truman had it on his desk, and there's this whole narrative of of that around presidencies. And the fact that Trump, which I think probably has some real morale um, implications, was so quick on something that wasn't ultimately that damaging to back off and to say, hey, this was their fault, not mine. Like you can't blame me for what just some other part of the government does, even if it ultimately – I'm the commander in chief. That was a powerful statement about where his instincts lie.
3: Well, and the part of the bureaucracy – that has resisted him the most is the national security establishment and the intelligence community. And that was true during the campaign, the part of the Republican Party, the Republican establishment that was most opposed to Trump, most alarmed by him, was the national security wing of the party, dozens of whom uh, signed letters opposing him and even endorsed Hillary Clinton. Uh, And we found out about how much of a base they have in the Republican Party, which is basically zero. But that is because so much of foreign policy is conducted unilaterally by the president and they didn't believe that he was up to the job. And he's now brought in a lot of people that my uh, national security conservative friends are quite cheered by. You know, people like General Mattis, General Kelly, General McMaster, um, and who seem like sort of firm hands on the tiller, but they've encountered all of these difficulties in actually operating in the Trump administration where, you know, Trump won't let certain people be appointed deputies because uh, he insists on pursuing his personal vendettas against people who didn't support him uh, or because they don't see eye to eye. And so, you know, something's got to give there. And I don't think we know who's going to win that particular battle. And I would say that on your comment about the buck stops here, I mean, I would not say personal accountability has ever been one of Donald Trump's signal characteristics. I think we've seen throughout the campaign, but really in his business career, um, his real strength is finding ways to avoid responsibility. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down.
0: If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day.
2: I'm thinking just as we're talking about your point of how presidencies are are defined by crises, that when you're just extrapolating forward from agenda pushing that you're missing something big. And it makes me think of a couple weeks on the ago on the podcast, I had our mutual friend Elizabeth Drew. And we were talking about her experience in Watergate and, and how she saw the Trump presidency. And the thing she kept saying to me, which I don't think I quite believe, but I, I do think there's something to it. Is she kept saying, I just don't see how this lasts. Something breaks here. Don't know what it is. Don't know how it breaks. But you can't just keep going like this. Something will have to change dramatically. It can change very negatively. Potentially, I guess it could change positively with a big shakeup. And conceptually, we're always waiting for the big Donald Trump pivot that never comes for any period of time. But but I'm curious if you buy that. I'm curious if you look at this and you just say, at some point, something is going to hit. And the contradictions of all this, the skeletal stuff, all of it is just—it it won't be possible anymore. It will either have to change or it will break.
3: I'm very much of two minds about this, and I think in a lot of ways it is the big question. And um, to bring it back to my profile of Kellyanne Conway, it's also sort of the note that I ended that piece on. Not to spoil it for anyone, please—if you haven't read it—turn off the podcast right now and go read The Atlantic and then come back. Uh, but this idea that they their approach. Uh, to breaking the rules was validated by winning the election. And that proves that the old rules don't apply. So on the one hand, everyone who has any experience with government or who's worked in White Houses before firmly believes that this is unsustainable. You, It can't go on like this. It's just not the way things work. And something's got to give, whether it's a, a Watergate-like constitutional crisis or something else, or, or potentially, as you say, of the good pivot. But the Trump argument to that is they kept saying that during the campaign they said it over and over and over for a year and a half and they said we could never win and look what happened so the argument then the analogy is they say Trump can't make America great again because the what Nixon called the the nattering nabobs right they uh, I think that was a Buchanan coinage wasn't it
2: wasn't Agnew who said is that? It
3: Agnew? Yes. Yeah, Sprag-
2: nabobs or negativism. Correct. Of negativity?
3: Negativism. But the point being, you know, these are just sort of a bunch of uh, – this is a bunch of sniping from ankle biters who don't see the big vision here. And just you wait. You know, Mr. Trump is going to make America great again and just like he won the election and he's going to embarrass the pundits in the media. He's going to embarrass the permanent – political class and the establishment. And you'll all see that he was right all along. And I do think that given what happened in the election, uh, we can't dismiss that possibility.
2: Something that I think plays into that a bit or is interesting around that is there are two ways to look at the polls right now. Uh, Trump tends to be hovering around, let's say, 42 to 46, depending on the polls last time I looked at them. And on the one hand, for a president at this stage of his presidency, that looks extremely bad. That is much lower than where Barack Obama or George W. Bush or Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan or George H.W. Bush were at this, at this moment. On the other hand, it is not an abnormal polling number for a mid-cycle president. This is very much what a Barack Obama looked like later in his term.
3: And the point I would make is that Donald Trump won 46 percent of the vote in the election. Mm-hmm. So he hasn't really lost anybody. Right. This idea— And he did that
2: with lower, I think, approval numbers than he is now.
3: Right. But this idea—about this I- about the same number of people approve of him now as people who voted for him is what I'm saying, which means that I think there is this liberal narrative out there that the administration is so obviously a catastrophe that all of these Trump voters regret the terrible thing that they did. And if the election—you know, I, there was one pollster who did who asked if the election were held now instead of back in November, who would you vote for? And it was like 49 Hillary, 45 Trump. So Hillary Clinton still can't close this thing, (laughs) right? (laughs) Four months after the fact, uh, people still, you know, she still does better than he does. Uh, But she's still not over 50 Mm percent. There is not this. I think there's a lot. If you listen to elite liberals in this country, you would think that the world is falling down upon our ears and the apocalypse has come. And everyone in America can see that this is a disaster. And in fact, as many people who voted for him in the first place still either support what Trump is doing or are still giving him a chance.
2: Yeah. And there's an overwhelming partisan stability there. Republicans, I mean, it's single-digit disapproval. And Democrats, it is single-digit approval. And independents are leaning a little bit towards Democrats. But it is amazing. And this goes, I think, to some of these arguments we've been talking about, about do you need an argument or do you just need to make sure you're activating the right identities over and over again? But if you just look at this through the lens of partisan identity... You would not know anything really unusual is happening here.
3: Well, and the extent to which partisanship is tied up with identity is something that political scientists debate a lot these days, right? Because people do move in and out of those categories. You're not born a Republican or a Democrat, and people do change their party affiliation over the years. Um, And the extent to which people, you know, register with a party or consider themselves a member of that party is not necessarily the same as the partisanship they display in voting, which is even more robust. But uh, the point of which is to say, you know, the Republican Party has had very negative ratings uh, in recent years, and it's mostly because self-identified Republicans don't like their own party. (laughs) And so, uh, and this is reflective of a lot of the Republican Civil War that we've spent so much time talking about in recent years. But it's fascinating to me. The thing that really interests me as a sort of long-term political trend is, on the one hand, for decades now, we have seen this increase in partisanship as a source of identity, partisanship as incredibly stable people who never split tickets and vote for the same party in every election and you know the 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 great disappearing swing vote as people have talked about. On the other hand, people register with parties less than ever and particularly younger voters are so negative on the parties as institutions and so much more likely to register as nonpartisans or independents in the states where there's party registration. And the extent to which, you know, the 2016 campaign was really a collapse of the party institutions for both the Democrats and the Republicans. I have to think there's a collision of those two long-term trends at some point. And, you know, what Trump did in 2016 he beat the Republican establishment in the primary, and then he beat the Democratic establishment in the general. And so, how do you square people's incredible partisan loyalty with their incredible disdain for the parties? And, and and at some point, does that come to a head?
2: I have a theory about this. Okay. So there. So I agree with you. I think this is the central mystery of politics right now. And the thing that helped me think about it. There's a fascinating paper. I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Um, it's Corwin Schmidt. Corwin Schmidt's paper. It it basically looks at exactly this question, and it shows that what has really changed in in people's views on parties, is, their view of their own party has changed a bit, and particularly independents who are party aligned, which is a lot of independents. Independents typically are very predictable party voters. They're an independent because they don't like their party, but they vote for their party every time because they really hate the other party. And what he kind of shows and 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 makes an argument around is that. More so than ever before, people have extreme – the parties have moved so far apart ideologically that people have very good ideas of what they stand for. So you may not like the Democratic Party but in a way that wasn't true in the 70s, you know the Republican Party is going to appoint pro-life judges and you know the Republican Party stands for big tax cuts for richer people and it just requires so much to make you move over that line that you just typically don't do it. And there's all this great Pew research that's just come out over the sort of 90s to right now showing the rise in people who think the other party is a threat to America. The other party is something to really be afraid of. A lot of this begins to make sense if you assume people are motivated more by fear of the other party than by love of their party. I think that's also how you get something like Donald Trump, who is unpopular with many of his voters on the day that he won the election. They just were really, really afraid of Hillary Clinton. I think it was 52% said they were voting against Clinton rather than for Trump. Negative partisanship feels very important to me here.
3: I agree with you. However, I do want to go back to what happened on November 8th because Trump would not have won had he not consolidated the Republican base vote. Uh, And that was something, by the way, that Kellyanne Conway was instrumental in helping him to do, particularly in bringing... College educated Republican women back into the fold uh, when they were, you know, Hillary Clinton was targeting them aggressively and they were very, very leery of Trump, particularly after the Access Hollywood tape. And it was by having Kellyanne out there speaking for the campaign, someone that those voters could identify with, number one, because she had c- credibility in the conservative movement, and number two, because she is a woman and talks about women's issues. Uh, that they were able to consolidate those regular Republican voters, but Donald Trump also would not have won without this massive swing vote among white working class voters in the Rust Belt, particularly in rural areas of the Rust Belt. The reason no one thought Donald Trump could win Michigan or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin uh, was be- the reason that was a blue wall was because these voters have been solidly Democratic, including throughout the Obama years. And those voters swung for Trump. My friend Craig Gilbert at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel did a fascinating breakdown of all of the localities in Wisconsin and how they voted in 2016 versus 2012. And of, I want to say, I'm going to botch these numbers, but of, I want to say, 1,500 localities, jurisdictions of whatever size in the state of Wisconsin, 500 of them went for Obama in 2012 and Trump in 2016. And the average size of those localities. The average population was 800 people. So all of these small communities, and particularly, as my colleague Ron Brownstein writes about so much, the non-college-educated white voters in these communities, there was a massive swing to Trump. So it wasn't only by—he needed both of those phenomena to win. He needed a swing vote on the one hand, and he needed stable partisanship uh, simultaneously. They were both necessary but not sufficient conditions But if you believe that, you know, partisanship is etched in stone and people vote the same way in every election, 2016 and the shattering of the blue wall totally ruins that thesis. So
2: I'm not sure I'm I'm as I find that thesis as ruined. I think a lot of what you're saying, what you're saying is valid, of course. But one difference between elections is just like literally who turns out. And this is something that is just very hard to tell in the data. We know that counties have swung from Obama to Trump and we can certainly find anecdotal of this particular voter went Obama to Trump. And, and, I, and I do think there are a bunch of them out there, but it also seems that who turned out was slightly different. And a lot of these things were very slight, right? You're dealing with a very, very close election in Wisconsin, a very, very close election in Michigan. I saw one um, poll suggesting that or one analysis suggesting that if black turnout, if African-American turnout had just been exactly what it was in 2012, Clinton probably would have been up over the hump. And that's not to say any one group is responsible. It's a lot of changes across a lot of groups. But that who was pulled out was a little bit different in this election and particularly in those rural areas, that made a very big difference.
3: Sure. And I don't want to discount also the uh, potential voter suppression piece of this, Mm -hmm. because when you talk about depressed African-American turnout, uh, I don't think the evidence is in yet, but I don't think we can discount all of the voter ID laws that were passed in a lot of these states. At the same time, you know, I saw it anecdotally, and, and it's certainly true that Hillary Clinton... A, would never have the ability to inspire African-American voters the way Barack Obama did, but B, really failed to Mm -hmm. um, inspire particularly younger African-American voters. And there were a lot of people sounding the alarm with her campaign, and her campaign was not listening in the run-up to the election. Um, But, but, you know, who turns out to vote beyond the factors of uh, who physically can uh, is who wants to vote. People talk about midterm turnout being different than presidential year turnout. Well, that's not a a fact of nature. That's who Mm -hmm. wants to vote and who thinks it's important to vote. So yes, a lot of the swing in those counties in Wisconsin is who decided to vote this year, who didn't vote before. But that is also a swing effect, a motivating effect, right? It goes back to Sean Trende's missing white Mm -hmm. voters theory and the idea that you know a lot of the reason Mitt Romney lost was because he left all these votes on the table of people he didn't speak to because they were working-class voters who didn't see him as representing their interests.
2: This to me is where I find a lot of the election commentary focuses to me on the wrong question. That I think there's a tremendous amount of trying to disentangle what gave Trump his winning margin. What happened that created enough votes for him to pull very narrowly ahead in Wisconsin, a Michigan, or Pennsylvania – And there, I think there are a million really good explanations, right? You can, if you ran that election a thousand times, you know, as as Nate Silver does in a model, I think you would get a lot of different outcomes, right? If things were just, you know, weather is a little bit different one day, if the Comey thing never happens, right? That's where you get, you know, the Democrats have very self-serving explanations about this. I think the the really important thing that happened is one that you identify, which is not how Trump got from, I don't remember the exact vote totals, but let's say 46 to 47.2 or whatever it was. But how he got to 46, which was fundamentally consolidating Republican and Republican-leaning voters. And that, to me, is the fascinating part because he had extremely high negatives in the Republican primary. I mean, there was a real sense that possibly he could be a candidate who would win the primary, but would win the primary, and you would have a 60 percent swing against him because so many Republicans would stay home or they would vote for the opposition. Hillary Clinton certainly had a campaign message that was built to be relatively non-ideological. She, I don't think, I don't think was able to pull that off because of her own branding, which is quite ideological. But she had a campaign message aimed at, you know, maybe you don't agree with me, but this guy can't be commander in chief. You can't trust him. And and that to me is where uh, the negative partisanship really played a, a pretty central role. I think that negative partisanship gave Trump, for all his idiosyncrasies, for all the things that made a lot of Republicans pretty. Uncertain about him, I think even on the day of the election, polls showed sixty-some percent of voters, which included ultimately a lot of the people who voted for him, did not think he was qualified, did not think he had the right temperament. But they're willing to vote for him anyway because the alternative was worse. And I just think the alternative is worse in American politics is getting to be a stronger and stronger argument, and also in some ways a putting aside the term worse. A more correct one, as the parties become further apart, as we get sharper and sharper choices between the two candidates, I think it makes sense that you see less swinging around. Um, I think it makes sense that you see a more stable electorate, which I think overall you do. But that to me, if I took one lesson from the election, it's the big thing I got wrong was I didn't see Trump consolidating to 44% as well as he did. Because then after that, there were specific people he pulled out that gave him enough to to pull it home.
3: And I think that goes back to what I was saying about the the two things needing to happen in tandem the the, the partisan consolidation plus the swing or newly galvanized vote but and but let's not forget the alternative in question uh, and how disliked Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. was and how in denial her campaign was about that. you know I think my pet theory is that you know the people around Hillary Clinton all really liked her. They didn't think it was fair or they didn't really believe all of the evidence that a lot of people didn't like her. And um, as someone with uh, with Bernie Sanders' campaign said at some point, like that was, that was sort of a pre-existing condition for Hillary. That was baked in. People just didn't like her. But her campaign persisted in, in sort of uh, ignoring or downplaying or, or looking past that, uh, I think, because people around her did like her. A lot of the people around Donald Trump don't like him. They totally got that a lot of people didn't like Donald Trump. They were running a campaign that was despite Donald Trump's, you know, personal likeability and they were not deceived by it at all. They they did not have any false sense of how people felt about Trump as a figure, and they just sort of worked around it.
2: I want to take a sort of sharp turn in the the conversation, talk about both your piece that came out um, just today, when on the day we're talking, um, and also broadly Russia. You have this piece, it's a little bit about the sort of Espionage and, and spy and in foreign influence economy within Washington. So, do you want to just lay out the sort of broad strokes of that? That first is a framework here.
3: Yeah, sure. Um, and this is another point at which you, the listener, can pause the podcast and go read my piece in theAtlantic.com. The piece is sort of about the the creepiness of life in Washington and the degree to which there's sort of this hidden game being played under the surface. Of foreign influences jockeying for power and this whole geopolitical thing uh, that permeates the sort of innocent, everything from cocktail party chatter to networking events. There are just these moments in life in Washington. And so and to me, it's epitomized by this whole game we're now playing of who met the Russian ambassador. Well, if you know, the contact that Sergei Kislyak allegedly had or or did, we know he had, Uh, with Donald Trump was he shook his hand at a reception before a speech at a think tank. Now, how many people have you shaken hands with at receptions at think tanks? This is something that people in Washington do all the time. And so the idea that that has become a contact with Russian intelligence and it's, you know, Kislyak's the one whose phone calls with Flynn eventually spurred Flynn's resignation whose contacts with Jeff Sessions and, well, in both Flynn's and Sessions' case, the the fact that they didn't disclose these contacts or their contents was the problem. It's funny to think that, you know, there's just sort of spies all around us in D.C. um, And you run into it from time to time. You know, I describe there was an attempt by the Chinese to hack the Romney campaign's emails in 2012. And the Romney people didn't think anything of it because it didn't seem real. And then we saw in 2016 that that could be a very real threat, <laughs> but there's a lot of this that just is always there under the surface. And, and just talking about it you, you seems kind of paranoid, right? But but we're all kind of living in a spy novel.
2: Do you get the the Gmail red bar now that says foreign governments are trying to hack into your account? Alas,
3: I'm apparently not important or dangerous <laughs> to have gotten the warning.
2: There's now a bunch of this around. I mean, I, yeah. I, I get it a bunch and. You know, you get that enough days in a row because uh, it keeps coming back, which means that- there, Or you get a request a
3: new, for verification of an account that you didn't try to log into. Well, there's that too. There's All kinds of things. Yeah, that
2: stuff is genuinely scary. So I've been working on a, a theory and it is just a theory. I, I cannot stress this enough. It's only because it's podcasting that I can even talk about it, of maybe what happened with Trump world in Russia. Because something is weird. There's this stuff where Trump maybe just shook the guy's hand before a think tank lunch. I don't care about that. But Manafort, the contacts with Carter Page, the contacts with Michael Flynn, the contacts with uh, Roger Stone, the way the WikiLeaks stuff was leaked, the intervention in the GOP platform to take out the aggressive plank on Ukraine, something needs to be added up here. And and obviously we don't have all the information yet, but I think there's a explanation that is simultaneously less sinister that kind of fits the evidence, which is to me, it, it seems very plausible that this was a team that had not played at very high levels of presidential politics before. So they didn't quite know what was okay and what wasn't. And they treated Russia the way they treated all kinds of interest groups that didn't like Hillary Clinton during the campaign. That Russia didn't like Hillary Clinton, they didn't like Hillary Clinton. Russia had some of this WikiLeaks stuff and wanted some guidance on how best to use it or maybe just wanted to give them a heads up it was coming to be friendly. So They appear to have at least done that through Roger Stone. And then, you know, Russia also had a little bit of God, wouldn't it be good if we had a good relationship? Do you guys really need this plank in the platform? And that nobody was sitting down and coming up with like, let's collaborate on the election with a hostile foreign government. It was nobody's big agenda item for the day. But that, you know, in ways it felt very normal because they were doing this with different, you know, unions and think tanks and interest groups and the Chamber of Commerce and whoever. There's a little bit of a very normal what felt like political horse trading happening and that it's only – after the election, when they've actually won, when all of a sudden things that didn't seem like a big deal at the time are getting ripped out into New York Times front page headlines. People are saying, no, 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 like you can't do that with foreign governments. They're not like other things. And all of a sudden things that they weren't quite innocent, but they felt normal have become very dangerous. And thus you get all this lying and these sort of weird counter leaks and counter narratives but uh, an administration in trouble for something that it just didn't realize what it meant that it was happening at the time.
3: Well, I'm not a Russia expert. And as you say, we don't have all the facts yet. um, And I don't have my own theory about this. I will say it is a, a wonderfully rich irony that Trump is now the subject of a lot of conspiracy theorizing as someone who's been the proponent of so much conspiracy theorizing. I mean, were he so disposed who could do a better job of connecting all these dots and making the case for the grand conspiracy than Alex Jones? I mean, if you know, if, there, if Alex Jones weren't pro-Trump or Glenn Beck back in the day on or the Donald chalkboard. Trump. <laughs> on the ch- no, but Glenn Beck was way better at sure. this, right? Putting it all up on the chalkboard and identifying the obscure roots of things. And unfortunately, they have not taken up this particular cause. So I would say the experts that I have talked to seem to think that Trump was a convenient vehicle for the Russians to cause chaos. Mm -hmm. And their agenda is chaos, not a particular result. And that is what they achieved by getting Trump elected. Again, as a non-expert, I don't feel like I have the expertise to, to weigh in. But it's not just an opportunism that anyone could have exploited. I do think we have to look at specific characteristics of Russia and Putin in this because it is very clear that Trump admires Putin for exactly the reasons. Trump's consistent crush on Putin has been he is strong, he is a leader, he is someone who gets what he wants. And to the extent that we can understand Trump by understanding his, some would say, fetish for authoritarianism or at least his worldview of sort of machismo, machismo, and dominance, I think that is very revealing. Uh, And then this clash of civilizations narrative that we're talking about, this idea that we are engaged in a global war with Islam and that Russia is an ally in that particular conflict and therefore, you know, allying with Putin against Islamic extremism is more important than uh, whatever previous disagreements we might have had with the Russian regime, I think that's also an important component of it.
2: I think that's right. And then there's a very fundamental transactionalism to the way Trump deals with the entire world. If you say nice things about him, he will say nice things about you. It almost doesn't matter who you are. And one thing Putin did was say nice things about Donald Trump. So Trump had, I think, some inclinations towards Putin. He happened, I think, somewhat randomly in some cases to have staff around him who had connections to Russian regimes or like Manafort, but also Putin came out and was very complimentary of Trump and Trump is complimentary back. And I think that also creates some of that feeling of of friendliness where other candidates who are more, one, I think hemmed in by traditional ideological structures of American politics, but two are just a little bit less susceptible to both flattery and criticism would have just steered clear of the entire situation.
3: Well, uh, one of my favorite quotes, Mark Twain once said, it is human to want to be liked. One can even notice it in the French. So uh, susceptibility to flattery is a universal human characteristic. Uh, But yes, I mean, there was this Trump-Putin bromance throughout the election. And this is going to be one of his big flashpoints with the Republican Party if it ever comes to a head, right? Because you have a Republican Party that for the most part has been very anti-Putin, very anti-Russia. Uh, some Republicans still very vocal in that perspective, particularly Senators McCain and Graham. Uh, others not sure where the base wants them to go on this. You know, if Trump's uh, victory signals, uh, and we've seen in a lot of opinion polling showing, that a lot of Republican base voters feel a lot more warmly toward Russia now than they did before Trump took up the issue. so. That is something that, that actually could really be a conflict. And I think trade is the other one where you, there was that one-day episode where it seemed like the Trump administration really was going to impose a 20 percent tariff on Mexico. And you did see a lot of Republicans in the Senate come out against it. So, you know, I think a lot of Democrats believe that, that Republicans are just ready to lie down and carry Trump's water no matter what he asks them to do, no matter what things they said they stood for he wants them to to reverse. I think those are a couple of areas where it won't be that easy.
2: Molly Ball, thank you for being on the podcast again.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Molly. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. Thank you to my producer this week, Afim Shapiro. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we'll be back shortly.